You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow a side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Side Hustle Pro podcast. Today on the show, we have Stephanie Thomas. Stephanie is the Senior Associate of Investments with Impact America Fund. Since 2013, Stephanie has primarily centered her passions around support for under-resourced entrepreneurs, including co-founding a female-centered entrepreneurship organization called Women Who Launch and traveling over 6,000 miles by car across the U.S. to work with small businesses, landing her a feature on HLN's Growing America docuseries. While in business school, Stephanie was selected as fund member of a social impact venture fund at the University of Michigan, sourcing opportunities for investment with education tech, within education technologies. The next year, she would go on to become a co-director with heavy focus on internal development. This experience led Stephanie to eventually pair up with Keisha Cash of Impact America Fund in 2015. In her work with Impact America Fund, Stephanie has emerged as a voice of Black women VCs, according to Fast Company, and works at the intersection of founder diversity, technology for impact, and the deployment of capital within ONTAP markets. She received her MBA from the Ross School at the University of Michigan and her BS in economics from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Nikki, for that great intro. I know. That was quite a mouthful. And and that was the shortened version, (laughs) y'all. Stephanie is quite accomplished. And um, we actually go way back. Like, we went to undergrad and also business school together. And I wanted her to be on the show because, you know, I just get so much inspiration from her career journey and her experiences. And I really know that other entrepreneurial women will get that same inspiration and motivation from her. So Steph, we are going to go all the way in today from, you know, (laughs) you talking us through your background to your current experiences and what um, led you to where you are today. So let's get into it. Yeah, Nikki, you know, every time you and I have a conversation, we always go deep. So I really appreciate <laughs> I really appreciate having you as, you know, a friend who can can really um continue to encourage me to do what I do and just listen to the bio. It's like who is that well, that doesn't even always necessarily sound like myself. It sounds um exhausting almost and when I think about how I've gotten there, it's definitely been a gradual journey, you know, step-by-step thing. I have to say that folks like you being in my network and my family, I would call you, um, has made the, made the difference. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We get kind of corny sometimes. Excuse us. (laughs) So yeah, let's, let's go back to where we really met, you know, or even before then. So you are now working as an entrepreneur, and you work alongside a lot of fellow entrepreneurs, especially, as you put it, um, under-resourced entrepreneurs. So how did that all come about? Were you, did you grow up amongst entrepreneurs? Like, how did you even start to think of that as a career route? 
Yeah, I'm, I definitely have to say uh, just where I am now, it's very entrepreneurial. Um, even though I'm in a venture capital capacity, working with Impact America Fund, I work directly with uh, the general founder and partner, Keisha Cash. And it's um, it's definitely been an adventure building a fund while also supporting um, entrepreneurs that we think are, are individuals that really care about community. And so we want to make sure that we're helping them to get further, faster with the capital that we're deploying. So being able to sort of be in this um, position to, to help uh, minority entrepreneurs and to actually also experience like an entrepreneurial environment, I have to say really started from my childhood, growing up in a house with a father who was a serial entrepreneur, very much focused on building. You know, he wanted to build something for our family. And um, he really felt that the best way to go about building wealth for for a family is to um, start something yourself, right? And to aspire to have um, ownership in um, your work and then being able to see the, the economics or the benefits from it, the income, right? And so um, it's, it, I, it took me a while to get there that I didn't always expect um, that I would sort of pay homage to my dad for what he'd done. Um, I had to do a lot of self-reflecting as an adult to actually get to that point. But I remember, you know, very vividly as a kid, you know, I would hop in the car with my dad. We'd take a trip to New York. I'm, you know, was born and raised in Washington, D.C. So you're talking, um, you know, a couple hundred mile drive uh, to the fashion, one of the fashion capitals of the world. And we would be on Canal Street and on, you know, these uh, in these fashion districts as well, uh, picking up items from merchants. And my father literally go back to D.C. and sell these items, you know, as sort of his side hustle while he he worked for the city government. And um, for us, it was you know experience and how do we figure out how to you know source items that people want um, that are fashionable and, and trendy and then bring them back home to D.C. And this was pre-internet, so a lot of people couldn't you know, couldn't shop online really uh, know what was was happening, get access to, to clothing that quickly. Um, so yeah, just those type of stories of my father just thinking of different ways to earn income. Um, is something that really gave me that respect um, about the entrepreneur and knowing that he was someone who didn't, you know, get a college education, didn't have a formal business education, but still was figuring it out. Um, it took him longer, right? He had to, he failed several times before he hit on something that was successful. But you know, at the end of the day, it was about being scrappy. It was about having that will. And so for me, because I was fortunate enough to eventually um, go get a college degree and get a formal business education, started to think about how could I, you know, leverage that opportunity to um, be a benefit to folks who remind me of, of my own father. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And you didn't automatically go into or start out being an entrepreneur. Like you mentioned, you did go to college and you did um, decide to kind of pursue that traditional route of getting your education. Tell us about that. Tell us about why you chose the uh, undergrad that you did and how that experience influenced your current path. A lot of that started out just um, through encouragement of from my parents uh, about the importance of education, right? Going to school. Again, for them, it was something that was um, a, a much bigger challenge, right? To get access to higher education, to be able to f- afford it. Um, and where they, where, how they grew up, you know, it's, it was more of a thing of after you graduate high school, you go straight to work, right? You try to figure out 
you know, what type of job you want to take on. College wasn't necessarily something that was expected in the household. So when my parents got together, they definitely wanted something different for my brothers and I. And so it was always about education, but it was always about, you know, that higher education that could launch us into um, professional careers where we could actually, um, you know, establish ourselves financially, right, and have that security. So we're thinking, you know, corporate America um, instead of more of the tip- typical, um, you know, service-based blue-collar jobs that were available locally for folks who didn't have, you know, college degree. So that was that was always a foundation. And, um, you know, again, my father is very much uh, busy, sa- business savvy, you know, even though he didn't have formal business education. And he would nudge, you know, me into thinking more about business. And for me, it was about I, at the time, I didn't you know, really know exactly what I wanted to do. But I knew uh, having a business uh, education could could allow me a bunch of different opportunities. So I always love options and that flexibility around it. And so, um, you know, whether working for myself or working for someone else, you know, having those fundamentals, I thought was critical. And, you know, what other way to go about doing it it, but to pursue, um, you know, business education at a world renowned um, business school. And the time uh, it was about going to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And my mother would always, you know, I remember she would take me to drop me off. Um, at, at school when I was in high school and we have these conversations, especially in my junior, senior year about um, opportunities beyond high school and what those would look like in terms of what schools I wanted to apply to. And so um, Wharton was a dream. And, you know, my mother encouraged me, you know, definitely if, if that was what I wanted to pursue to go after it. You know, this was one of my first lessons around believing in myself. And at the end of the day, I was like, you know, there's no way I'm going to get into that caliber school, but um, had a, a support system. Again, it's always been a theme in my life to encourage me and to really see um, the strengths in me and the potential in me that maybe I didn't see at the time and to just work hard for it and, and, to, and to go after it. And fortunately, you know, enough, I was accepted into the program and that's how I sort of got my start in business. But, you know, I have to say there were a lot of learnings for me once I got into um, the program where it wasn't necessarily just about um, learning business fundamentals, the academic piece of it. It was really about learning about who I was as an individual, what I really wanted. And talk about that because, you know, we were at Penn at the same time I was in the School of Arts and Sciences and you were in Wharton and I saw that grind that um, Wharton is a special place. especially for the undergrads. And I did not envy you that grind. Talk to me about how you adjusted to that and how you got through that, because especially being an African-American woman, there weren't a lot of you guys, right? How do you, how did you navigate that? I mean, you know, (laughs) Hey, look, you know, it it wasn't a perfect process. It wasn't, uh, it was a definitely up and down journey. Yeah. I tell people that all the time. I definitely earned my stripes during that time, I just found people who, you know, I could resonate with people who really, you know, I felt were very similar to me, um, but also ambitious and had drive and who could be supportive. And, um, you know, Nikki ended up being for, uh, I think for both of us, actually, um, the African Rhythms Dance Group, right? Like having stuff outside of the classroom where we could um, release, right? Have have folks that we um, felt were, people we identify with like an affinity mm-hmm. and um, being able to rely, to rely on those folks, even in the hard times. So I think 
one thing that was very intimidating about being at Wharton is you had students from phenomenal, impressive students from all over the, the globe. You know, some of them had already built and sold companies, you know, some were being featured in like, you know, the New York Times, um, being writers, lead writers on war stories um, in their countries. And it was just one of those things where I didn't feel adequate. You know, I kind of kept looking around like, you know, do I fit into this place? And I think um, a a, a student group like um, performing arts group like African Rhythms, which is is the haven, you know, that was for me on campus, really allowed me to also um, sort of be my full self in that capacity um, and have that community of people to support me through those times and through those challenges. So I think, um, you know, again, for me, throughout my career, throughout my life, it's always been about finding your tribe, finding people that you can <laughs> resonate with and people who can support you um, through those ups and downs. Because you're going to have them. You know, it's, it's not always going to be smooth sailing. Right. And I was I was just about to say finding your tribe. And how important that was. That was really important for my experience as well. I mean, African rhythms, when I first got to Penn, it was such a culture shock. I I really wanted to transfer, actually. I was like, this place, I don't know about this place. And it was because of finding my tribe that I was able to, you know, start to get my sea legs, so to speak, and was able to to make it through the experience. Like, don't get me wrong. I I just went back for my 10-year, actually, and I look back at the experience now with fond overall fond memories but there were definitely ups and downs and challenging times so uh kudos to african rhythms for getting us through that (laughs) 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 Um, so then from penn you went on to citigroup right you were vp at citigroup you managed institutional investor relations how did you uh go from penn to citigroup and um you know what what made you decide to take that as your first job out of undergrad wow nikki you're making me go back yeah we have to go back (laughs) in order to come forward we have to (laughs) you know it's fun it's so funny um because when i look back um it is one of those things it's like oh did i kind of fall into that or did were there certain things that that you know, really have that were intentional, right? About h- how my path ended up uh, being the way it was. And I think it was a little bit of both, but I think, you know, at the same time, for me, I've always been aware of, you know, what I'm good at and, and playing to my strengths. Um, I haven't always been able to articulate them, right? But I always knew sort of what environments were the, the best environments for me and most conducive. And, um, and I would even do that within within sort of a traditional context. It wasn't always about taking the alternative path or always looking for something that's totally different from what everyone else is doing. But it was also, you know, even within those sort of um, mainstream uh, circles, how can I carve out my own little thing, right? And I think, so you think about Citigroup, you know, I'm coming from the Wharton School, you know, there are tons of kids who are like so competitive, just killing it, right? Just, Just killing it in school. And, um, you know, they could get any job they wanted, right? It gets them for some of these top firms to go into more of these traditional professions. And that a lot of that included investment banking and uh, management consulting, right? Um, I chose the banking route. But for me, I knew that absolutely not. I didn't want to go into traditional investment banking. But I did want to learn about the fundamentals about the banking system, how it worked, especially how it tied to supporting companies, right? And so um, 
looking at that, and then also was very familiar, very familiar, interested in um, just the international business space. And even with my major, I ended up minoring in East Asian studies. So I was very much um, intrigued by East Asian culture and international trade. So when I looked at City, it was sort of like, okay, I'm going into to banking, which is very traditional and sort of almost expected for a student coming out of the business school. But what's, you know, what within inside that world is, is an area with, that would be really interesting to me that I could flourish and, and really um, get my feet wet in a way that I thought was conducive to my, my growth. And that was in the International Trade Group at City. And they had the biggest and the best, you know, group at the time doing this work. And so, you know, another thing I did is you, you also had to apply directly through a certain system to get your job. But, you know, instead of just going through the traditional system, right, I wanted to know the people on the other side who were working in this capacity. And so I would do a lot of heavy networking with folks who were decision makers in those groups um, to say, hey, I'm very interested in this. You know, I, this is why I'd be a great candidate. And FYI, when you see my resume, you know, know that this is me and, you know, hopefully you be consider me seriously for the opportunity. Um, and so I would take trips to New York from Philadelphia um, to be in the presence of these people um, and letting them know how interested I was in this in this opportunity. So I think that's how I got my start, just really looking at um, things that were aligned with my interests, but then also um, things that could set me up in a way that would be. Um, conducive for me to perform well, you know, and um, not necessarily always taking the path that someone had set out for me. Um, but even within more mainstream paths, you know, again, carving out my niche that I knew would work best for me and my needs. So, yeah, we were talking about your role at City, and you were, you ended up staying, being at uh, City Group for five years. So at this point, at any point during that experience where you like, okay, I'm starting to see, you know, I, I'm getting these skills, I'm getting this background. Now is the time for me to start doing some entrepreneurial things or start thinking about making that move. Was that in the back of your mind at all? It wasn't um, necessarily like, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to start something. It was it was more organic than that. It was like, I, I really want to make a difference in communities I care about. And it's great, you know, to have this foundation you're working with large companies, right? But at the end of the day, you know, you're, you feel, you start to feel like a cog in a wheel, you know, it's a big, big institution, um, very robust training, which is great. But in terms of, you know, as you move up, being able to make certain decisions on things, um, that becomes harder and harder to access. Right. Um, and you know, people talk about glass ceilings, right. And for me, like looking around in the day, when I got to a certain point, I, I wasn't really seeing people who looked like me, who thought like me, who, um, were, you know, African-American females, <laughs> right. Who would come from, who were first generation, you know, college grads and who, who really, um, brought a, a different perspective to the table, um, just because of their diverse background. Um, it was literally, you know, being surrounded by, um, older white men most of the time. And so figuring, figuring out how to navigate the politics of that, right. Um, became exhausting. It was, it was, I think, necessary for for to inform like my future experiences that I would have as a professional but I think um at some point you know I've I felt so anxious to break free from that um bureaucracy and even from corporate America and so it was more of like an entrepreneurial fire 
in me to to do something different and, and start things that I thought, you know, were more important, right, that mattered for me. And so how could I use my skills that I gained in this more corporate capacity to work on initiatives like in community? And so what I started out doing is, I, you know, I didn't just jump out there right away. What I really did is start finding folks within Manhattan, within Brooklyn, New York, who, you know, had a similar identity, similar passion, similar story, and working on nonprofit initiatives. Um, I worked on the launch of an organization that's still running today. It's called Cali's Network Foundation, where we partnered with um, high schools in Brooklyn to support those students in their college readiness and in career prep initiatives, how to get them exposure to different industries before they pursue certain majors in college. So um, doing work like that, you know, was, you know, interesting to me and, and connected me more to my passions. Or, you know, one point I worked on an ind- independent black film project, right? Going out trying to, we had a, you know, terrific team of, of a director and producer, um, black guys had a great uh, uh film that they had written, you know, script for. And now they were going out trying to see capital from investors to support it. And that experience sort of sparked something in my mind around capital accessibility, right? Uh, in black spaces and with, you know, black entrepreneurs. And it was hard as hell <laughs> to find anyone who would, you know, really champion the project, but then um, be able to put money behind it, right? And then we ended up having people who loved the idea, but didn't have, you know, the the capital or the resources to do it. Oh, wow. So, so things like that, just, you know, those type of experiences just branching out a little bit while I was still in corporate America, I think shaped and informed sort of what I wanted to do next, yeah. but I still had no clue. And so I had to um, take a step back and really think about what I wanted. Yeah. And I thought that B school would be the next um, phase that would allow me that space to do that. So that was right. the, the turning point. Yeah. But before we even, you know, get into B school, cause that's its own chapter, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you hit on something really important. The fact that you didn't really know, you know, what the next step would be or exactly what you wanted to be doing as you shouldn't, you know, a lot of times, even now we feel pressure on ourselves to just have the full picture. And like, our life is big, our life is wide, we, we can't possibly have the full picture right now at this moment, which could end up being a blip in time when we look back, right? So you didn't really know. But what you did do was start pursuing all of your passions that might not seem to align or make sense or have anything to do with your career goals but they all ended up tying back to something like that was kind of your side hustle so to speak like starting catalyst and doing this film project right absolutely absolutely getting out there get my feet wet (laughs) figuring (laughs) out what it's about and just learning yeah just learning a lot yeah because you know a lot of times we don't realize what we could be doing while we're lost and confused is we just got to start figuring stuff out on our own by just putting ourselves out there and learning and the easiest place to start is with something you like doing even if you can't connect the dots right now like start doing something that you love or that you know gets you excited inside Um, yeah and I'm glad that you said that so um, before we actually spoke today I got an email from a friend she'll send me notes you know from different sermons um, as she's uh, doing you know her bible study and she goes to a certain church in New Jersey and she'll send me notes from that. And so today when I read the notes, um, one thing that stood out is that uh, the preacher said your 
passion is, or your purpose rather, is greater than your position. And that was really profound because, you know, I think to your point, Nikki, is a lot of times we'll, you know, pull our hair out about what we should be doing and where we should be in the, in our lives. And a lot of times we're comparing ourselves to other folks and whether it's, you know, financially or just, you know, what type of job we, we currently have, you know, we're not quite satisfied. And so our position is something that we feel um, should take priority, right, in terms of how we make decisions about things. But it should be actually the reverse where your pa- your passion and your purpose, whatever you feel that is, should take priority over the position that you have in life. And if you continue to do that, it will lead to putting you in the, the right position that you need to be in to make the change that you want to make. Um, but you can't always see that, you know, in that moment. But if you trust it enough to trust your purpose and trust that passion that you have and follow that, then it will it will get you to the position you want to be in. Amen. And that just spoke a word to me. So thank you to your friend because I did not go to church today. <laughs> so <laughs> that is my message for the week. Yes. Jim, yeah. Passion is so morning. much greater than position. Like because it, yeah, like we'll we'll get back to that. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about B school. You know, we um coincidentally started going through our pursuit of business school around the same time. We both joined um management leadership for tomorrow, MLT. Uh, MBA prep program and little, you know, did we know we would end up both going to University of Michigan Ross School, but we did. And what, you know, I know my reasons for pursuing business school, but tell tell the audience about your reasons. Like you'd come from Wharton, you'd worked at Citigroup. Were you not all business out yet? Like, <laughs> did you not have it all at that time? <laughs> Here we go. You know, again, it's, I think it really was about, you know, B school is, is looked at in a certain way to most people, um, you know, and it's something like that is typical, right, or traditional for folks to do once they sort of burn out from from working or they just don't know what the hell they want to get into next. For me, I looked at it as, as an opportunity to to test things out, to try things that, you know, I otherwise wouldn't have opportunity to do. And it, it wasn't about going to get, you know, formal business education to go into a mainstream industry, right? Um, it was about coming out of that <laughs> and really finding myself and taking two years to do it. If, 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 if that makes sense to most people, a lot of people think, well, what about, you know, the academic piece and et cetera. And, you know, I have to say that did, you know, have its place in the experience with B-School. But again, for me, those two years were so critical for me to almost unlearn a lot of stuff that I had learned before <laughs> and to really, you know, pick up um, new lessons, but less about business as taught in the classroom and you know curriculum style it's more about business as it applies to me as stephanie you know as an individual what i want and what i could bring to the world and really knowing what that is mm. and that's something i had no time to do up to that point i was grinding 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 taking on next opportunity etc finding roles that fit where i can grow but not really reflecting on that growth and knowing where that growth was headed mm-hmm. so um so yeah that was the the appealing aspect of for me, you know, just to take that time out, you know, right. take a pause in yeah. life. And, you know, it's so funny you mentioned the unlearning because I went into the process very much still um, 
aiming and looking for a mainstream role. You know, my focus was on marketing, but possibly brand management. And, you know, it's so serendipitous that we did end up there together and also end up living together and and then, you know, meeting our third roommate, Media, who I really think you guys changed the trajectory of my life in some senses because... It was the first time I really, we all would sit down and have these conversations about what we wanted our life to look like post-business school. And it was the first time I really started to unlearn all (laughs) the definitions of what success is, especially success post-MBA. Because once you get into the MBA um, bubble, it's all about, okay, you got to get this internship and okay, you got to get the full-time role and you got to go to these recruiting events and there are only certain type of industries and companies that are recruiting. And so we all start to quickly um, categorize ourselves into these buckets, but you were never on that path. (laughs) You you had no interest in that path, right? You, that's when you really started to um, focus specifically on venture capital. So tell us about that. Like when you first started exploring this industry, did you know much about it before you came to Ross? I didn't know much at all. What I did know is that there were some black folks in Silicon Valley and they were really trying to make moves, <laughs> especially on behalf of, of black folks. And I was digging it. So you think about, you know, like Angela Benton or um, Mike Green talks about the innovation economy. Angela Benton started the New Me Accelerator. I remember she when I was thinking of all this, I think it had to be back in 2012, um, CNN had featured her on um, Soledad O'Brien's uh, program at the time. It's called, I think it's called Being Black in America. And it was about, you know, this black woman in the Valley starting this accelerator specifically for black tech entrepreneurs. I thought it was the coolest thing. And Google at one time had, had even... Um, funded her or or sponsored her program to support these entrepreneurs. But long story short, you know, pioneers like her um, who came out of um, that ecosystem, right? You know, people I've, who, who actually look like me, right? <laughs> who came from underserved community who were in there trying to, you know, basically tear up everything that uh, traditional VC startup land w- would suggest uh, a successful tech entrepreneur should look like. And I was just um, so at that point. And then I started thinking more around, you know, obviously it started tying back to my father and my affinity just for entrepreneurs and supporting them. But then, you know, it's thinking about on a macro level, what the intersection of, you know, capital accessibility, minority entrepreneurship and technology could really look like. I mean, you think about racial wealth gaps um, and today where we sit, where for every one dollar of white wealth you have. Um, six cents on the dollar of black wealth in comparison, you know, such, such a big difference in how um, technology is evolving and moving and how it's um, creating uh, huge uh, windfalls of of cash and capital in the economy um, on never before seen levels. Like how can we get our folks, our people into this space to be able to build technology companies that could um, allow for reinvestment um, of capital earned from uh, these endeavors uh, to support the growth and elevation of black communities. So how we bring that money back to us, back into our communities, back into our needs and have entrepreneurs who are creating jobs, who you know really care about the community because they're from the community and just having black folks cash out on what is um, such a hyper growth sector and a sector that, by the way, because we've moved into 
sort of what they call, you know, Internet 2.0, you know, how are we getting, you know, our communities online into the digital fold, right, where technology is literally permeating every part of our lives. So I thought that was very, very cool. And I was like, you know what, I need to get in there. And I don't know what my my role position, like, you know, what my value will be to this, but it's an ecosystem that's, you know, needs a lot of support and I want to play a part. And so that's, yeah, that's how I started thinking more about the capital accessibility piece around it and the, the venture capital side. So you, um, you had your, you know, your, your thoughts were starting to bubble up about this industry. You had a passion that started to grow and kind of, you know, single out an area where you could finally make an impact or focus on the community that you wanted to impact but you still had to get there. You, you were coming from a completely different background and you knew you had to get there. So walk us through how you positioned yourself to get the experiences you needed to get into this industry of venture capital. Yeah, it was a windy road. <laughs> <laughs> so um, first thing I will, I will mention looking back on you know, B school is one thing. The the second part is like which which school, which program. Um, and right, we we completely skipped over that. That is our Ross bias because we're just like, well, Ross is the greatest, so we don't even have to touch on that. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> I, I mean, I honestly, when I got there, it was just love. Like the community there, at Ross was just everything I needed at the time, and. But the but the important thing around like intentionality, right, and what I wanted to do, and you know how I was thinking about venture capital. So, um, you know, little fun fact that most people don't know is so at the Ross School, they house the um, the first the nation's first student led uh, social venture fund. Um, and now, you know, obviously there there are a lot of different uh, venture funds and social impact funds at, across various business school programs now. But um, it really was was started at, at University of Michigan, and so for me to have opportunity to, to go to the school and get in on that experience, it's like a two year commitment, really uh, robust program, but totally student led. You know, where you're learning the ins and outs of venture capitalism, you're learning ins and outs of what it means to apply that in a social impact. Uh, format or framework and you're you're able to just ex- experiment you know what I mean and you're able to make certain decisions around investment and actually handle real money and make a, a huge impact on early stage companies so that's where I got that's where I got you know my first real introduction into uh, venture capital but doing it in a way that was somewhat safe and you know unconventional is, is more academic right um around the exercise being able to to bring different ideas perspectives into play um but being being done so in a way that's taught by a um world-renowned you know faculty member right who's done this stuff for years and so that was just very cool and then just being able to take that leadership um, position too within that capacity to understand like how do you go about even building a fund right what are the what's the infrastructure around an actual investment fund and and how do you organize for that? So it's very, very cool opportunity. Yeah. It, it was really interesting that, you know, you zeroed in on that because that's something, and again, we had completely different career focuses, but that's something that I paid less attention to and learned more about as you uh, 
did it and, you know, grew into a leadership role with the venture fund. But um, even just being in the organization, like that's not enough to get you to where you are now. Like you, you had to take other steps. Like you made the conscious choice to forego as much income as you could have gotten during the summer with like a traditional <laughs> internship. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to do the MBA across America program. And, and, and then I think that is really unique. So like share a little bit about that for the people at home who have no idea what that is. And, um, My crazy you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, so to your point, you know, the Social Venture Fund was one one thing, right, um, that led me to Ross. When I got there, a whole other bucket of things opened up. And I was just on a mission to, again, and I tell people this all the time, tell a story that nobody can tell. You know, I like do things that, you know, people haven't done, have experiences that people, other people can't talk about. And, I love that so yeah. much. <laughs> tell a story that no one can tell. And you know what, too, like, that's not even a big ask. If you just tell your story, no one else could tell that. Like no one else has lived in your shoes. And for my entrepreneurs out there that are listening, you know, when you're looking at a, a building a business and, you know, say if it's, um, you know, a cosmetics company, right? You know, there's tons of those. And you're a little disheartened by the fact that it's a crowded space or that it seems overly competitive. And you're like, how can I differentiate myself? And I think, you know, what you, you hit the nail on the head, Nikki, with is um, it's easy to do it, right, to tell your own story because your story is so original and, and it's yours. And so when you bring that to, a, you know, a company element, when you bring it into your business, um, that's what is your initial differentiator, right? Only you can execute on this vision in this way. So don't be discouraged by that because you'll always have, you know, competition in the market and whatever idea you're thinking of, I always say it's not novel. You know, most, you know, it's 7 billion plus people in this world. Somebody else has probably already thought of your idea, but it's about the execution of and what you bring as individual to that idea that makes it different. Got it. And I kind of interrupted you like you were about to talk about, um, you know, the fact that you still had to take a lot of different moves to position yourself for the world of VC, even though you were working at the student run um, venture fund, like you still had to really take strategic moves. So tell us a little bit about that, including like your internship experience. Yeah, yeah. So I knew, look, at the end of the day, that summer between the first year at school and the second year is when you never get back again. And it is a precious summer. So for me, I really wanted to be um, thoughtful around how I was going to use it and to just do something that may seem very risky, but really wasn't in hindsight. Because at the end of the day, I knew that, you know, I had a certain skill set already, right, from my previous work experience. I had a certain network. I knew certain things. I could do something. <laughs> so I knew at the end of the day, even if that failed um, tragically, there were ways I could go back to doing things I had done before that worked and maybe starting doing a reset if I needed to to figure out stuff. So knowing what was in my wheelhouse, you know, what I had um, at risk really was, you know, the first step. And that that kind of alleviated a lot of the initial stress. The other thing is, you know, I went in knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to get more exposure to as many entrepreneurs as possible across as many different businesses as possible, because I knew that would inform my overall thinking around entrepreneurial, entrepreneurship, I'm sorry, 
the struggles around being an entrepreneur. What are their main pain points? You know, I ran into a, a guy who was an entrepreneur resident at MIT during my B school journey, and one thing he told me is that you gotta, if you know, if you're if you're gonna have you know credibility in the industry, you know, if you're not sort of working in a startup, you know, understanding intent operations, at some point you have to figure out how to really you know, walk in the shoes of the entrepreneur and know what they're dealing with on a day to day and at a different, you know, at every different life cycle of their company. And so that was really my focus. Um, so over the summer, you know, I was thinking about how can I get into an actual startup that's growing, you know, that is really hunkering down with the founders, um, building out the operations, building out the team, understanding their market, understanding the swings and ups and downs in their market and, and growing as a venture. And that's what landed me, you know, with, with figuring out how to get access to, um, Nexercise, which was a startup company that I ended up working for the summer 2014. So I ended up taking on two internship opportunities that summer. It was with Nexercise, uh, which is now called, called, uh, Swerk It. It's a, a, a fitness app company doing really well. Um, they pivoted, um, actually while I was working for them, but you know, that was the first internship that I took. And then the second was to your point, Nikki, the NBA's across America opportunity. So, um, for me, coupling those things together was, was very important. You know, the first one getting exposure within a real startup, seeing, you know, how they're managing themselves, how they're building themselves out and then how they're handling the day to day around changes in the market and within the company. And then the second part was around, again, like getting exposure to so many entrepreneurs doing different things, um, understanding their different challenges um, and being able to to work with them um, and to support them in a certain capacity to get over those challenges. And that's where where MBAs across America played a huge role. I mean, it's such a cool opportunity to hop in a car (laughs) with three other, you know, smart, ambitious people. passionate individuals, you know, care about uh, small business, take this road trip across the country, which by the way is incredible, you know, it's such a beautiful topography, beautiful, just natural landscape, you know, across the U.S. in st- cities and states I had, you know, I would never go to eventually to like Bozeman, Montana, right? Never even knew Bozeman existed until I ended up going out there to work with an entrepreneur, Working with female entrepreneurs, male entrepreneurs, you know, um, minority or, you know, underserved entrepreneurs. And then some who were serial entrepreneurs who were actually motivational speakers. You know, they'd done this, this stuff so long that they were actually getting paid to speak about it. So a whole breath. And, you know, from working on a, on a, uh, a wine farm to working with a woman who manufactured pet products. Like it was it was such a great um overall, you know, diverse, encompassing experience for me that I had to do it. <laughs> and yeah. what I myself being on the road with all those uncertainties and challenges, you know, was just another level that I, I, I wouldn't have expected um, to receive when I first went in. And how did you uh, end up connecting with, you know, post that experience, going back into your second year, what, what opportunities were you looking for? And how did you end up connecting with Keisha Cash at Impact America Fund? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, when you're, when you're really focused on what you want, when you're focused on your purpose and you really feeling like you're figuring that out, it's almost like the universe just starts to connect things for you. And I, you know, I jokingly said like the universe connected me and Keisha, but 
it really was about continuing to stay the course of, of what I wanted um, my career to look like, you know, and that means intersecting the skill set that I had and what I was good at, right, my strengths with my passion and purpose. So what I felt, felt like I thought that was. And being able to continuously look at opportunities in that way would lead me to, to people who felt the same way about, you know, certain things I was interested in, right, or had maybe done some work in that space. And so I started to get further and further entrenched in a network that existed of folks who were very like-minded. And um, through that, I got connected to Keisha because she, you know, during my the spring semester of my second year in business school, she happened to be running this three month graduate fellowship program to support her fund. She had just launched a fund, um, you know, it was less than a year before um, she it, she would have had come up on her first year anniversary that summer um, after I graduated. But in that spring, she needed some dedicated fellows who were very passionate about community, very you know interested in technology intersection and had some sort of tangible experience or expertise related to, to the fund or the business. And so um, was connected, got recommended by someone um, for the program and then was able to take this three month graduate fellowship opportunity um, during the last semester of school. Through that experience is really cool and unexpected. So I was supposed to do this big, you know, landscape analysis research around big data and technology, et cetera. And um, and then also how that's, you know, being layered on to the social impact space, like data for good, et cetera. So I was doing that sort of landscape analysis work. But in the middle of that is when the Maven $10 million Series A opportunity came about through the fund. And this is like a live deal yeah, going give on. Give us some, some background <laughs> on Maven for, for folks who don't know. Yeah, sure. Um, we'll definitely talk about Maven. So Maven is one of our portfolio companies at Impact America Fund, um, a company that is really supporting hundreds of thousands of, of black hairstyles across the country um, by being a what they call a distribution as a service company. So they provide the inventory of black hair care products to these stylists and then also offer them an e-commerce platform where through this this platform that each of these stylists have, they can sell um, product, uh, most of the product being um, hair extensions today, uh, to their clients directly. And in this way, not only are they earning money as um, hairstylists who do the installations of the, the weave or the hair extensions, but they also earn income on selling the actual product, the hair extension or the, the um, wet good product that's going through the platform. And so they're able to make up to 20% more income annually um, by being able to, to have almost a, you know, like a, a retail outlet for their online store without having to, to incur the cost of that inventory. Because we know, we know when we're starting up, especially a lot of times as, as um, solopreneurs you know, mm-hmm. who are like one-man shop for their business, we don't have a lot of capital or money to invest in inventory, et cetera, to, to, to open up a retail shop. But, but how can we you know, earn revenue off of that even though we're working in that industry, okay. the, the black hair care industry is $9 billion, right? Or yes. more. And, and Some not of much of it is owned by us. <laughs> it's owned by us, right? But we have so many black women who are working in this space as service providers for the industry. And they're not getting that, you know, a piece of that income that comes from the retail side of the distribution of the hair, hair products. And so Maven allows 
these things that coexist where they're meeting the hairstyles right where they are as a, the stylist for their clients, but giving them the opportunity to sell um, products uh, based on those relationships that they have with their clients. So that's Maven, and they've, they've been doing extremely well um, in the venture capital space as a Black-owned company. So the deal was coming up right when you were, were still in B-School, still just doing this, this initial project for Impact America? Yes. So the opportunity came up. We were going to invest in the round. It was being led by one of the most, you know, prominent venture capital firms in Silicon Valley, Andreessen Horowitz. And um, we needed to put together, you know, we had some some diligence we needed to complete for the company. We had to put together an investment memo. And so I hopped right on that, that opportunity to lead the um, initiative and my teammates who are in the graduate fellowship program to work through that, you know, the completing research diligence and then also completing the investment memo. Investment memo is a internal document, a formal document that's used to make an investment decision on a company. Um, so led that effort, we closed it out and then um, were able to come into the, to the round, the series A round as an investor. And through that action and through that, that work that I had done, um, Keisha was really, um, upfront about, you know, how she, she appreciated that work and, and wanted me to join her to help build our Impact America Fund after the Graduate Fellowship Program. And so she came to me and she, she's basically like, you know, Stephanie, love the work that you've been doing. Um, really appreciate how you just dropped everything and hopped on the transaction. We're able to get it done. And because of that, you know, I don't know what you're doing after school in terms of, of career and and what companies you've signed up with or, you know, what you're looking at, but would love if you could help me build this out. And, you know, that's, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, pretty incredible, um, especially because a couple years before that, when I learned about who she was, I said to myself, I don't know how I'm going to meet this woman, but I have to meet her because she's definitely the first black woman, you know, I'd seen at that time who was really raising capital on her own. Um, through investors, and then using that capital to really directly support Black communities and Black entrepreneurship in a way that I hadn't seen before. Um, so I had already been admiring her from afar. And, you know, fortunate enough for me, by being focused on things that were authentic to myself and things I was passionate about that actually aligned with her passions as well, it led me to her and um, to the unique opportunity that it is today. Impact America Fund. Yeah, and I never get tired of hearing that story because I'm like, that's my friend. (laughs) (laughs) And no, that was just, I was like, what? Steph is like, is what is she doing? Like, you were just so focused, so busy during that time. But um, now, you know, looking back, I totally get it. So you're in this world now of Impact America. Um, What what is your role like? What is your job like? Tell us about um, a typical week, day, you're always on the road, like what um, kind of things are you guys up to? We're, we're, you know, out here just really trying to get it. (laughs) We're hustling. We are, you know. (laughs) We're definitely focused heads down, trying to prove this this out. When we say prove it out, it's basically because little known history facts, so Keisha Cash is officially, and by the way, Stanford uh, Graduate Business School actually did a a case study and a case write-up on her and Impact America Fund. So, you know, if you ever get a 
a chance to check it out, definitely check out her story and how the fund was established. Oh, awesome. I'll I'll try to link to that in the show notes. So, um, you know, once this launches, I will um, add that to the show notes. Yeah, but because of that work, she's officially the first black woman to start a a, um, social venture impact fund. And it's it's pretty cool how she's been able to do a lot of this um, work on her own. And then me coming in, you know, as part of the team, it's very, very lean, very entrepreneurial for sure. I cover um, a lot of the operational components mm-hmm. of the fund. Um, so and when you say fund, because when you say fund, you know, sometimes I take for granted <clears throat> what I know and what I don't know because of, of being around you and going to B school. Like, Break it down a little bit in terms of, so you have to raise money, right, to have money to give away in, in, simple, in simple terms, right? <laughs> so explain how it all works. It's the other people's money model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's one one thing is kind of a misconception about us. I think, and I don't think people necessarily know, think that like I took money out of my own bank account <laughs> for the fund, but but it is a notion that it is our money um, when in reality we have the decision making power on where the money goes. But it, but we still have responsibility to the investors or the folks who gave us the money. So it's not quite our money. Um, what we do is we work with a couple of different groups of folks to to bring investment into the fund. Um, those folks are either high net worth individuals. So you're talking about people who are, you know, hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars um, net worth who can put a couple million, you know, say per set, say, or a couple hundred thousand um, into an organization like Impact America Fund, right? And that feels some kind of way about it. Like it, it's, it's, it's very little money um, to them and based on what they're putting in and what their net worth is. <laughs> so you have to have these like ultra high net worth individuals um, who can take that risk. Right. And it'll represent like between two to say 5% of their portfolio of investments. So whatever they're investing their money in, to- in totally only a very, very small portion of that would they dedicate to something like impact America Fund. Um, so that's one group. Another group, is more institutional folks. So if you think about certain financial services companies, um, you know, that have billions of dollars, obviously, like they can put money into our fund um, or foundations even, you know, that manage these huge multi-billion dollar endowments. Um, A lot of them, you know, will manage for universities and, and other, you know, institutions And so they'll have a lot of um, money that they have to put in different financial instruments, right, to make a return on that money. And uh, again, a very small portion. So they'll put in like stocks and bonds and different things like that. But then they'll also put a very, very small portion into things like Impact America Fund. And the reason why it's such a small percentage is because for venture capital, very high risk um, investment activity, right? But the, the and that's why the goal is to have a, a pool of money, which, you know, you, you pool this money from a bunch of different investors, as I had explained, um, that money is then deployed to early stage companies based on certain criteria that the, the fund has established for how they want to invest the money. Um, and that's important because you want to be aligned with your investors, right, as a fund. So 
the folks who are investing in you to be called limited partners, they, you know, again, want to understand, even though we have the, as asset managers, the, the final decision-making power on how the money is deployed or invested in companies, we still have to report this information back to our limited partners. So that's why it's important for us to establish a, what we call a thesis around how we invest or the types of companies that we want to invest in. Um, so that's a, so that's, that's how, you know, a fund is set up and, and sort of what its purpose is. And the thing is it wants to, to take all this money that it's been able to raise through its limited partners and then put it into as many companies as possible and as quickly that align with whatever that investment criteria that was established. And the idea is that if you do this, um, at least one or two of those companies out of that portfolio, portfolio, you can think about 10 to 12 companies total in a portfolio. You know, some, some companies, some funds that have bigger portfolios, you know, obviously uh, it gives them a higher probability, right, to, to meet those returns. But you want to you, you hit on at least one or two companies that can return the, the full money of the fund. So that company will go from being a couple million dollars worth um, and its value to say, you know, a couple billion worth in value. And if, and if that happens, then obviously you get a huge upside on your investment and that money is then returned back to the limited partners who initially invested. So that's, that's the, the whole purpose of venture capital. And, and so, through that upside, a small percentage of that goes out as payment or compensation to the asset manager along with their ongoing management fee that they take. And then that's how you get paid, too. That's how I get paid. Yes, yeah. how we get paid. Mm-hmm. So what's a day in the life like when, you know, how, what's the percentage of time you're, you're raising more funds and the percentage of time you are deploying? So a fund, fundraising for the fund can, you know, it, it really depends. It could take from six months to, you know, a year and a half or, you know, sometimes even two years, depending on the asset manager's decision and, you know, and the partner's decision around um, who they want to take money from, how long that's going to take, how big, you know, the fund is going to be. And when you're a first time fund, like Impact America Fund, meaning we, you know, we haven't done it before this way. Um, this is our first time going out doing this. Um, usually it takes longer, right? Um, because you have to build those relationships. You have to court those investors. People want to see a track record. They want to see that you know what you're doing with their money. Um, so it could take some time, but you take whatever that time is, you set a, a limit legally and you stick to that limit, whatever that is. Um, and then once you're done, uh, once that time expires, um, whatever you've raised, um, you then use to deploy. So for a fund, usually their life cycle is um, 10 years. The first five years is open to the fund actually going out and investing in companies. Um, and, and a fund doesn't have to spend those, those full five years investing, right? They can spend the first two years doing it and then, you know, that's it. Um, they'll just let the, the investments um, earn value. But they, they have up into five years, you know, it's standard for them to be able to take up to five years, um, depending on what they're investing in, what their targets are. But then after that five years, then, this, then the ob- object is for this, the second five years um, for them to let those companies um, grow in value. And so that's where the portfolio management piece of the job comes into play. Um, and then in the, in the middle of that, they can actually start working on a second fund. Um, and so usually a venture capital 
organization will go through three fund cycles. Um, they'll start their first fund. They'll invest, you know, all the capital for that particular fund into those portfolio companies. Let those vest. As that's happening, they'll start raising money for their second one. And then they'll do that again for their third. And the objective is that as, you know, companies from the first fund mature, they start returning a certain investment. And it's like a staggered return that happens over um, several years. And what about the entrepreneurs during this process? So talk to me about when you're going out there and talking to the entrepreneurs, where do you find uh, small businesses that you're interested in? Are you only looking for small businesses or, or, you know, it can be different types of ventures as long as their mission aligns with Impact America's? Yeah, we're, we're looking for um, entrepreneurs that are building businesses that are tech-enabled or tech-based for-profit companies within operating within a billion-plus-dollar markets, right? So we're hoping that they'll hit on something within a, a big market opportunity. That way um, it can, as you know, their business scales and is successful, the impact of that um, scales as well. And so we look for companies that are really – you know, they're for-profit based, but the social impact piece is inherent in that um, model. Uh, so if you think about Maven again, um, you know, it's a for-profit business where they're able to earn revenue based on how much, you know, hair product is sold through their e-commerce platform, right? But the, but the products are sold through hairstylists, hairstylists that are typically making between, and, and we did surveys on these stylists on the platform, making between eighteen to $24,000 in annual income, right? That's very, very, you know, low income for somebody to support themselves. Um, but because we're able to support this low to moderate income group of folks, um, because they get commission on everything that they sell, you know, as Maven earns revenue through the product, so, so do the um, hairstylist. And so that's where we identify that impact where it's, it's very organic. It's very much tied to the, to the success of the business. So, um, you know, that's an example of type of companies that we look at. Usually they've already raised some, some, some money already. Um, they already have gone through some sort of formal like accelerator program or something to really prove out their model. They have traction, they have customers. Um, usually they're making some revenue, but they just need, um, like operational fine tuning, a lot of times, you know, the entrepreneurs has gone from just being very much heads down and, and very like startup entrepreneur, but needs to really prepare him or herself um, in a professional development capacity to really be like the CEO, you know, head of a multi-million dollar company. And so, you know, helping them position for that type of growth, but then also getting them connected to more traditional venture capital firms that wouldn't necessarily take a chance on them early on just because they don't understand the business model. So we serve as translators of that, helping them get to that next big level. And usually we call that between 12 and 18 months away from a Series A type of financing. Got it. And so if I'm an entrepreneur or um, a business owner who wants to get on your radar, where should I be right now? Where where are you looking for me (laughs) so I can make sure I'm there? (laughs) <laughs> well, I will say like the easiest way is at, is to go to our website and we have um, information online for our entrepreneurs so they can understand what we're looking for. But then also we have a submission form where we have them completed so we can understand their business, where they are, who they are. You can 
go right there, directly fill that out, and it'll come right to us. And, and that's we, impactamericafund.com. Yes, that's impactamericafund.com. Go there. I'm sure Nikki, you'll share it on your website as well. But you go there. That's the first easiest way to get in touch with us. And for most venture capital firms, they don't respond to everyone. We respond to each and every submission um, that we get. So that's our promise to you. Oh, nice. And what are some common misconceptions about um, what you do and how this whole process works? Yeah. So you mean, what do I do in terms of screening opportunities or as like what my day to day looks like? I know we didn't even talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Right. We keep (laughs) so much to that. So, so much to say, but it's okay. I think that there's some missteps that you probably see a lot of uh, people of color, you know, making because we just don't know much about the process. And, and I think you can help to clarify like what, the purpose of VC is and the fact that not every business needs to raise capital. Like you, I've seen you share that a lot in your talks. Like, um, why do you feel that way? Venture capital is, is very specific. Is a very specific type of capital. You know, it really traditionally is around supporting companies within high, high growth or what they call hyper growth, uh, sectors. So, you know, a lot of high tech, um, or, you know, tech based, type of business models within, but not just, you know, tech based, but it has to also be operating within a big enough market. Right. So, you know, again, if I go back to the Maven example, they're working in a $9 billion market. If they were working in a nine, $9 million market, it wouldn't be as interesting. Right. Um, because the point is, again, it's very high risk. And so you have to hit on opportunities that could yield a high return. So that's venture capital specifically. You know, it's a, it's a space where we felt like we could make the impact that we thought um, is needed in underserved communities based on where technology is today. But we know that that's not the only role to play, right? We know there's so much that needs to happen for our communities to really uplift us, especially supporting our entrepreneurs. And we know that not all Black entrepreneurs are going to be working in this space, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to think about where you are um, in terms of your business, what type of industry you're in. What type of of um, pain point or need you're solving for, and how you're going about doing it? You know, are you? Is it a brick and mortar business? Is it a, is it a business that has a technology component to it? You know, is it a lifestyle type of business, right? And all of those are okay. Another thing you think about is what stage you're in. Are you at you know just sort of the of conceiving the idea? Like you have a business plan, but you haven't put anything together yet to really start building on it? Or are you in the build stage, but you're still trying to figure out what the final product's going to look like or what the final service is going to look like by testing it out with, with customers? Or, you know, have you already tested out with customers? You got traction, you got revenue, you just need um, additional money to build out your team, right? So you can expand and like, you know, like what you're doing works very well in New York City, but maybe you want to try it in Boston, right? And see what that looks like. And so you need additional money to get there and to replicate that model. So figuring out what stage you're at is also very important. And then the other thing is figuring out how big you want your company to be. Like you don't have to build this crazy, you know, like I said, multi-billion dollar company. Um, again, in, in VC land, it's important because you want to, we want to make sure the investors were able to get a return that's enough to pay back you know, our initial investors of the fund. Um, but at the end of the day, 
every business, you know, doesn't aspire to do that. And every entrepreneur is not built to do that. And so being very honest about how big you want your company to be and what that entails for you as the founder, your ability to do it, but also your will to do it. You know, if you have other things going on or you want to live a certain lifestyle, by all means, do that. That is your right. You know, that's your God given right. But be clear about it early on and figure out what that big vision really looks like for you. And once you take that step, then you can break down, Okay, what do I need to do at each phase to get to that bigger vision? And how much money and resources is that going to take me for at each of those steps? And that's how you'll really start to figure out what the money gaps are. Um, And from there, you'll get a better understanding of, you know, who are the money resources out there? You know, you can think about. Um, public sector grants, you know, done through organizations like the the SBA, Small Business Administration, um, low interest debt uh, financing that can come out of those type of agencies or, you know, working with a, a local community bank. Um, doesn't have to be, you know, Wells Fargo, doesn't have to be a Sydney group. It could be, um, it could be a, a black owned bank, you know, if, if there's one in your town, you know, a lot of these are very community or, oriented how can you get a loan from some of them? Um, some of it is just bootstrapping. If you're able to save up some funds um, and even, you know, God forbid, you have to leverage a credit line, um, high interest credit line. But thinking through like the different things and, and what you can afford and what you can't afford and what you have access to and don't is going to be very important. Yeah, I, I think that's all like really sound advice that people don't always know that they, they there, there are certain models of raising money or getting support for your business that are more prominent and more talked about than others. And so we just really need to be able to think outside of the box and, and make sure we know that we're doing what's best for our particular business and industry. Um, so finally. But oh, Nikki, yeah. I want to say just a couple of things about the funding piece. Yeah. I just think are, are really important. Um, one is that it's not a silver bullet for everything. So, even if you get it, you know, it, it's not going to solve your problems. You, you at the end of the day have to be very good at being a steward of that money, um, knowing how much to spend, where to spend it and how much of the yields that you want to see come out of that spend. So just being thoughtful around that piece. Um, it's not the end all be all. Yeah. And I'm so <laughs> glad you brought that up because I did forget to really touch on the fact that you know, getting money actually comes with a lot more pressure. <laughs> so there, you you are no longer like just in this on your own. You have people to who can, are now holding you accountable for making absolutely. certain gains with your business. So talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Like not all money is good money, you know. Like, and you could be in a position where maybe you're very attractive in the market. You have the right, you know, risk profile, and you have folks coming at you who want to give you, cut you these big checks, but that doesn't mean you should take all of them, right? Like love, <laughs> quote, and future, but, it, but he said, you know, you do what you want when you pop. And so if you, if your head's down and your business is growing and doing its thing and you're successful and you're earning revenue, you're going to have all kinds of folks coming after you with capital, with bank loans, with, you know, working capital, credit lines, you know, even maybe venture capital money, even private investors, right? People want to get in on the action, but you got to, you know, remember that you at the end of the day have the 
the power and the choice around what money you want to take and what you don't. And again, what type of relationships you want to tie yourself to with that money. So making sure you understand what people's intentions are around cutting you a check, right? Like, is it really just about the returns or is it really about the work that you're doing and the impact you're making in your community? And if you're aligned with that person on their, or that institution with your values, et cetera, and your bigger vision for the company too, then um, that's great. But if you're not, then that's a red flag. And so that money may not be worth it at the end of the day. It may look good today, but down the line, it may be way more than you bargained for. So being really thoughtful about that. Yeah, so right. And finally, what parting advice do you, parting advice do you have for women side hustlers who you know dream of one day working for themselves but don't know where to start? There's always somewhere you can start, even if it's it's something very small, um, like just putting your idea on on paper. <laughs> so you know, always think about how you can take advantage of today um, based on where you are, what you have access to, who you have access to. Even if it's just a conversation with somebody like reaching out saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking of this business idea. just want to brainstorm with you around it or want to just get your opinion about it as a potential customer or somebody who could be interested in it. Like give me feedback. Right. So there's always something you can do, even if it's not the thing that you initially had your mind set on. You know, that one thing may take you six months where you thought it could take you three. Right. But there's something that that'll take you you know, three days to get done. And that may be something that you can just go ahead and start working on and shipping away at. So don't ever feel like, you know, there's, there isn't something that you can do or there's something else that you have to do that's hindering these other things to grow. I also think that, um, we got to start worrying about what people think, you know, I mean, we all have, you know, issues around confidence and self esteem I know I do. Like, I was even jittery for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You, I'm jittery to release it, but we're just going to keep on moving. And we got to keep sharing that, Nikki, because I think we have to remind people that all of us, even when we seemingly look like we got our shit together, we're nervous on the inside. You know, we don't know. We don't, I don't know if the information I'm sharing with you guys is going to be helpful. I hope it is. Right. Or you might say, you know, I don't think she was that helpful to me. But, you know, at the end of the day, you got to just put yourself out there because if you don't, you'll regret it. You know, somebody else will. Right. And then they'll do their thing. And you're like, man, I wish, you know, I could have done it better. Or you know, like, I wish I really had the courage to take that leap. Or if it's just really an issue you're passionate about, you know, why not you? Why not you be the person to solve for it? And even if you fail, which is also a very beautiful thing because you learn so much, you know what I mean? And for the next endeavor, you can take those learnings and kill it, right? Yeah. But even if you fail, you'd be surprised that like within that failure, like how much you're inspiring people. And so just thinking about the fact that it's, and I think we said this, we mentioned this in, at the Blavity Conference, but it's so much bigger than you. And for us as African-American women, you know, it is so much bigger than us. It always is, right? <laughs> we're yeah. always doing it for ourselves, but we're also doing it for our people. And so I would just encourage folks to always, you know, keep that in the forefront of their minds when they're scared or they're unsure. Um, and then also just connect with people who are ahead of you, right? Who yep. who've been where you're going. You you don't want to have to make mistakes 
um, you know, if you don't have to, like some of them are great for learning, but others you can clearly avoid, right? If they, especially if they're very expensive and someone else has already figured it out, right? The best practice of it. Like, who is that person that you aspire to be in a couple of years or who just you know, seem like they got it, they got it together and they figure something out um, that you need some, some, some information around, like really tap into those folks and, and see what your future could look like, right? Like have that magnetism with another individual to help pull you forward and push you forward. I think we work in silos too often. We don't collaborate enough. Gotta find, Nikki, we all talk about, gotta find your tribe. Gotta, gotta find, find your people. Your tribe. Gotta find your girls or whomever who's exactly. going to support you now and help elevate you throughout. And I'm so glad we're ending on this note because um, it. I love that. It's like the one thing that I always try to make myself transparent, you know, even when I'm posting on Instagram and people hit me up and they're so inspired by me and it's like, I'm scared. Like most times (laughs) before I write something, I have to push through the like, oh my gosh, what if, you know, like, you know, I work a full-time job. Like what if my employer sees this and they, you know, think something about it and blah, blah, blah. Um, So I like to keep that in mind too, that it's so much bigger than me. Like there's someone else out there who is maybe two years from where I am now. So, you know, sometimes I also think about like, who am I? Like, I'm still learning. Who am I to like try to coin myself as this expert who can teach someone else something else? Because, you know, 30 sneak up on you. Like, I still feel like I'm in college (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, who am I? But there's someone who actually is still in college or just got out of college who's where I was 10 years ago who needs to hear my story. So I I keep that in mind that it's bigger than me and my insecurities and my nervousness. And then finally, yeah, rejection is absolutely redirection, as Oprah says. So Mm -hmm. if this fails, like, who cares? Like, I'll learn, like, okay, maybe I'm not a podcaster. You know, we will move right along to the next thing that it will probably get me closer to because um, I failed at this. Um, and, and And a note, too, on, like, learning from others, definitely... I feel like if someone hasn't done exactly what you've done, they've done a variation of it. For example, with podcasting, like there's so much information once you Google how to podcast to actually teach you. Like people are like, oh my God, you're starting a podcast. And it's actually like anyone could do it. Just Google it. So um, Mm -hmm. I would absolutely (laughs) encourage everybody to go after their passion. So on that note, Thank you so much, Steph, for being a guest on the Side Hustle Pro podcast. Um, we, I'm honored to have you on, and I can't wait for everyone to hear this. And um, finally, just how do people follow you or get in touch post-listening to this interview? Yeah, so again, you can find us on our website. It's called impactamericafund.com. Um, so you can find us there. And Nikki, I believe that you'll share that information. Yes. Um, I'm also on Twitter. You can tweet me, uh, direct message me at Technically Speaking. So it's T-E-C-H-N-L-Y underscore S-P-E-A-K-N. All right. Thank you so much, Steph. And on that note, I am going to say bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you like the show, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. And if you want to hear more from me, you can find me online at sidehustlepro.co and on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Side Hustle Pro. Talk to you next week.